Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 26 called The Booming Fourth Century. In the last couple of episodes you've heard about what the Emperor Constantine is most famous for, i.e. his conversion to Christianity and his founding of Constantinople as New Rome and the future political heart of the Roman Empire. But there's another less well-known aspect of his reign, which was the economic recovery that Rome experienced in the 4th century. For one of the most impactful of all of Constantine's actions was the restoration of a stable currency. Both Aurelian and Diocletian had failed in this respect. The reason was simply that they didn't have enough gold or silver to pay the army, which was, of course, the motive for debasing the coinage in the first place. As you heard in episode 21, the problem for third century emperors was that they could not balance their budgets because the cost of maintaining an army increased at exactly the same time that tax revenues crumbled due to barbarian invasions. Put simply, the army's failure to stop the barbarians meant that it could not be paid. So it was paid in pretend money, as Aurelian had done with his invention of a so-called fiat currency. Just as a reminder, a fiat currency is one with a government guarantee of its value and only a bit of gold or silver. Not surprisingly, people didn't like being paid with these cheap coins, so they wanted more of them. And this caused inflation, which in turn undermined economic confidence and restricted trade, which again reduced tax revenues. In this way, the Roman Empire was caught in a vicious downward economic spiral. While much of the state's funding pressure was alleviated by Diocletian's successful reinvention of the empire's fiscal system, as covered in episode 21, it was Constantine who restored monetary stability. This began in 312, probably shortly before his victory at the Milvian Bridge, when he minted a new gold coin called the Solidus at Trier on the German frontier. It was made of pure 24-carat gold. The coin was struck at a rate of 72 coins to a Roman pound, which weighed 11.6 ounces in modern measurements. And during his reign, Constantine minted increasing numbers of these valuable solidi. There was a significant step up when he secured full control over the empire in 324. After his death, the minting of solidi continued to grow so that by the mid-4th century, it had become the chief monetary unit in the empire. Thereafter, the solidus survived the fall of the Western Roman Empire and remained the main coin of the Eastern Roman Empire until the 10th century. During this time, it was never devalued. It became the dollar, so to speak, of both the ancient and also the medieval worlds for the best part of a millennium, a currency that could always be relied on no matter what else was happening. In essence, this monetary revolution represented a simple return to the gold standard. And how did Constantine achieve this? Well, the answer was that unlike previous emperors, he had sufficient gold to issue enough of these coins. 
But it should be remembered that the process was very gradual. He issued the coins little by little, using what gold he had at the time. The result was not the sort of sudden wholesale intervention in monetary policy that Aurelian and Diocletian had attempted. It was a much more subtle build-up of gold coinage that eventually established a new monetary framework over a pretty long period of time. But even so, where did the gold come from? Well, a lot came from Diocletian's new tax system, which was very successful. Some came from the melting down of treasures in the old pagan temples, which were being ransacked as Christianity spread in the 4th century. And some came from the growth in the 4th century Roman economy. And it was this economic recovery that was to prove the most valuable benefit of all. For under Constantine and his sons, confidence returned to the Roman economy. Much of the destruction of the 3rd century was reversed. It shouldn't be forgotten that in the late 3rd century, large parts of the Roman Empire, in particular Gaul and south of the Danube, the Balkans, had been devastated by the barbarian invasions. Vast areas of cropland had been laid waste, causing famine and making the Roman populations more susceptible to the plague. In the West, urban life had been shattered by the barbarians. Towns and cities had been burnt and pillaged. For example, Paris had been reduced from a large Roman city to a defensive citadel on the island of the Ile de la Cité. In Gaul and the Balkans, the areas that were most affected by the Alemanni, the Franks and the Goths, populations declined, trade was incapacitated, the long straight Roman roads across Gaul, northern Italy and south of the Danube had become paths for the barbarians to march into the heart of the empire. It had not been safe to travel for most of the second half of the 3rd century, let alone conduct long-distance trade. But in the 4th century, all of this changed. With the frontiers restored by Diocletian's actions, trade resumed. After the traumas of the 3rd century, monetary stability was like putting the Roman Empire on steroids. Suddenly, The banking sector revived after its demise in the 3rd century. Credit was again made available for commerce. This is shown in the writings of the priest John Chrysostom, who has left us with vivid descriptions of the bankers at work in Antioch, lending money to merchants. Quote, The merchant who wants to get rich prepares a ship, hires sailors, summons a captain, and does all the other things necessary to set sail, and borrows money and tries the sea and passes into foreign lands, end quote. Trading networks boomed in the 4th century and growing trade created opportunities to get rich quickly for lots of different types of people. It wasn't just merchants but also coppersmiths, sausage makers, fullers and even bath attendants who saw business was booming and made their fortunes. Some of them indeed enrolled into the new senate at Constantinople giving it a distinct flavour of new money. In the east, the towns and cities seem to have profited in particular, not just Constantinople, 
but also Antioch, Alexandria and countless other communities were booming. Surviving fragments of land registers from Egypt show that wealth was broadly held with the emergence of many small landowners and independent businessmen. In the West, there appears to have been more social stratification than in the East. A wealthy elite, for example, developed in Italy, Gaul and Britain. Records suggest that their wealth could be enormous. According to one Greek observer, the great senatorial houses in Rome were like cities in their own right, with temples, baths and even the odd hippodrome inside. Slavery was still widespread and the new wealth seems to have only increased the levels of slave ownership. All the middle classes owned slaves, often dozens of them, and the wealthy had thousands. This new wealth was displayed in the return of monumental building projects – Constantinople became a magnificent new city, with its population growing at least tenfold within the space of a century, rising from around 30,000 in 330 to over 300,000 by 400. Developments in using concrete and brick enabled the construction of vast new buildings, such as the Baths of Diocletian in Rome, which can still be seen today and which even surpassed the gigantic baths built by the Emperor Caracalla. Maxentius began and Constantine completed the construction of a massive basilica in the Roman Forum on such a scale that even what little is left of it today dwarfs the other buildings. Meanwhile, Roman art was also booming. Mosaics reached new heights of sophistication, as shown in the abundance of 4th century examples of mosaics uncovered in villas across the empire. For instance, the brilliance and beauty of the mosaics discovered in the Piazza Armarina villa in Sicily must have been widely replicated. In Britain, copious amounts of striking 4th century mosaics are still being uncovered today. New art was replacing old art. In particular, the boom in mosaics was accompanied by the disappearance of Roman sculpture in the later 3rd century. Busts and statues copied from the exquisite Greek masterpieces by the likes of Phidias and Praxiteles had been a key feature of ancient Roman civilization. They were sculpted throughout the empire in the centuries up until the 3rd, when their production faltered and then disappeared completely. The reasons for this are still debated by historians, but the major cause of their demise in the West was almost certainly economic decline. The availability of both skilled craftsmen and quarried marble simply became too limited. Then the emergence of different artistic forms associated with the rise of Christianity put an end to it altogether. So one of the most striking aspects of the ancient world was lost – So the 4th century Roman world was radically different from its classical past, but it was still a very prosperous and sophisticated society. Introducing universal Roman citizenship had made it more cosmopolitan than ever before, and so long as you were a Roman citizen, the empire was no longer just a political system designed to enrich Italy, but a land of opportunity for all. The Pax Romana might be over, 
but the 4th century Roman Empire was still booming. And I'd like to pause there for a moment to reflect on the new Roman Empire that came into being in the 4th century, created by three of the most important emperors in Roman history, Aurelian, Diocletian and Constantine. For the key point was that the Romans had survived the crisis of the 3rd century. As the Duke of Wellington said of the Battle of Waterloo, it was a damn close-run thing. They, the Romans, had also come so close to collapse, yet they had not just survived, they had triumphed. And this triumph came through revolution. It was a revolution that would have shocked the traditionalists of the old empire. Christianity and Constantinople were outrageous intruders on the ancient Roman value system. Looking back, it's hard to believe that they actually occurred, but that is because we underestimate, I think, the horrors of the third century. It makes me think of what Vladimir Lenin said about the Russian Revolution of 1917, when he said that a revolution is impossible without a revolutionary situation. By this he meant for the Russians that it was the First World War, when the Tsarist regime was completely defeated by the Germans, that enabled the great Bolshevik revolution. Now, for the Romans, I suggest that the third century crisis was the equivalent of that revolutionary situation that enabled them to reinvent themselves. For the truth was that the whole Roman world was now engineered to avoid a repeat of the military disasters of the 3rd century. Diocletian had reinvented the Roman army and government to provide a more effective military machine. Henceforth, the Roman Empire was effectively geared to total war. Of course, the crisis also brought profound social change. The rise of Christianity was a product of this. Fourth century Romans were disillusioned with their ancient gods who had failed to defend the frontiers. Their temples were pulled down. Faith was now placed in a new god who it was hoped would prove more effective. Of course, Christianity was also politically expedient. Constantine used it to give him legitimacy. He could not have imagined the profound effect his actions would have, for he effectively invented the divine right of kings, a political philosophy that would dominate Western Europe until the French Revolution of 1789. And the changes certainly did not end there gone or going, were many of the most important touchstones of classical Rome, from gladiators to sculpture. New artistic forms reflected the new values of a new society. And most remarkable of all, as we've talked about in this episode, the 4th century Roman economy was booming. The combination of secure frontiers and Constantine's restoration of the monetary system allowed merchants to resume trading. In their wake, the economy woke up, people could get rich, a land of opportunity beckoned. So, to 4th century Romans, the future looked good. 
But little did they realise that the crisis of the 3rd century and the revolution of the 4th were only the first act in a much bigger story that was about to unravel. And that story was the fall of the Roman Empire. For Act 2 was about to begin. Far away in the distant steppelands of Asia, climate change was about to reshape the world. Entire races of people would soon be on the move to find new lands to live in. A storm was gathering that would threaten the whole of civilised humanity, from China to Persia, and which would ultimately crash into the Christian Roman Empire. In short, the Huns were coming. And in the next episode, we'll begin with this next chapter of Roman history, starting with the death of Constantine and the succession of his three sons. Oh yes, and I also wanted to mention that I've posted a blog on my website about the Arch of Constantine, which I thought you might be interested in. One of the things that makes the Arch so fascinating, I think, is that it doesn't show the Christian symbols on it, as you would expect, which we talked about in episode 24. And you can also see some photos I've recently taken of the Arch as well. And my website address is www.nickholmesauthor.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.